Welcome to Witch and Goddess. I'm your host, Patty Black. I'm a witch, a teacher, and priestess. Goddess devotion is an essential part of my craft, and many goddesses are my cohorts in magic. Each episode, we explore a different goddess, her lore, and how to connect with her energetically and magically. Welcome. Today we attempt a glimpse of the great and mysterious Irish queen, the Morrigan. Per usual, scholars disagree on the correct etymology of her name. Many have connected more to a European word meaning terror, part of the English word nightmare, and regan meaning queen, which is obviously similar to the Latin regina or regent. So we see her name interpreted as great queen and phantom queen, almost interchangeably. She wears both titles very well. The Morrigan is considered her collective name, a title referring to her nature as a triple goddess, which we'll explore a little later. Her themes include sovereignty, shape-shifting, death, rebirth, war, battle, prophecy, omens, magic, fertility, and the land. Now, modern writings have linked the Morrigan to Morgan Le Fay from Arthurian legends, who just so happens to be my primary goddess. I believe most parties have come to the conclusion that there's no strong connection between the two. The name Morgan is Welsh, meaning seaborn. Morrigan is Irish, and the root words are associated with terror and greatness. The name sounds similar, and both goddesses are associated with magic and shape-shifting. But overall, many goddesses are associated with these themes. As a follower of Morgan Le Fay, they feel like distinctly different energies to me, Yet, in The Feast of the Morrigan, Christopher Penzak has written a beautiful page about how he has come to see Morgana and Maka, who is an aspect of the Morrigan, as inhabiting the same energetic space, their identities even merging at times. It's this way with a lot of deities. Their lore overlaps, and followers often experience them as merged. As we dig into this fierce and mysterious figure, Keep in mind that the Celts emphasized oral remembrance of legends and traditions. Therefore, all written sources of information on the Morrigan were recorded and written by Irish monks after the decline of paganism and rise of Christianity. We can only guess at the ways in which this opposing perspective influences the narratives. Legends of empowered goddesses being relayed by monks and priests who were responsible for discouraging the sexuality and sovereignty of women. It would be ironic if it weren't tragic. Historically, the Morrigan has been traced to the Copper Age, so we're talking as early as 3500 BCE. She is of the Tua de Danan, the tribe or people of the gods, or the people of the goddess Danu. To simplify the history, almost criminally, the Tua de Danan are considered gods or royalty, and possibly the predecessors of Celtic fey kind. She is perhaps most famous for her appearances before great battles as the goddess of fate, and is considered one of Ireland's most powerful goddesses. She saw the future of all things, and offered prophecies and favors to heroes and gods as she saw fit. In her role as the Phantom Queen, she circled the battlefield as ravens or crows to carry away the dead, and was both the single goddess and triformed. 
To better understand the Morrigan's strong associations with battle, we can look at the people of the time when she was most revered in Ireland. They idolized warfare. Women were intimately involved in battles, often fighting to protect the land, which they viewed as sacred and feminine in nature. The Morgan's greatness was achieved primarily in connection to battle. Consider that it was at least partly her involvement and pivotal role in legendary battles that earned her sovereign reputation. So this great queen was a female of action, one who knew the necessity of occasionally going to war, one who was willing to be in the midst of battles and would not hesitate to put her magic into the mix. She is considered a goddess of magic and sorcery, but her magic appears mostly as a means to an end, that of winning battles for her favored side. Unlike some goddesses of witchcraft, the Morrigan seems to me to be a warrior first and a great magician in the pursuit of winning battles. She used sorcery and incantations as her primary weapons in battles and to determine the fate of each side. She weaponized poetry and the other side reputedly died of fright because of her poetic intimidation. And from her high perspective as the crow or raven, the Morrigan sees the big picture, the end game. She sees the battles that define and turn the entire war. We can trust her vision. She asks us, where can we put our magic to use for the greater good? Where can we assist with the big picture? and use our own sorcery to further our endgame. There are repeated themes of omens in her legends, whether as a crow, sending one of her crows, or the vision Kukulin had of her washing his bloody armor. She's deeply linked with fate, prophecy, and especially the prophecy of big matters and battles of mankind. She is the determiner of fate. Soldiers were struck with either fear or courage upon seeing her crow during or before battle. What is coming, death or great victory? And remember that with the Morrigan, when death is foretold, there is the possibility of choosing rebirth in the cauldron of regeneration, which is stirred by Bive. In some sources, her husband was the Dagda, or the great god, who came to her for prophecy before major battles. Her appearance is mysterious. Commonly, she's considered to have red hair in her own form, um, and yet modern depictions often show her with dark or even black hair. The thing with deity, we know, is that they will show the form they feel is necessary to serve their purpose or elicit attention or recognition from their target. So yes, she may appear with all sorts of hair colors and more. She's also said to wear a black feathered cloak, and in legend, when she makes love to the Dogda by the river, it has been said that she straddled the river, one leg on either side. The Morrigan as a shapeshifter reminds us of our ability to adapt to the needs of every situation. Our ability to live fully as a warrior, queen, a lover, an all-seeing corvid, a cow, or a crone. We are not static not limited by others' perceptions of us or our role in one area of our lives. We are not only parents, employees, partners, etc. We can embody multiple roles as we desire or have need.
As we see with the Irish goddess Breed, it was common for Celtic gods to be ascribed a multiform nature to help organize and present their many aspects and features. The triple form was common, but did not necessarily mean maiden, mother, crone. This quote from The Feast of the Morrigan by Christopher Penzak sums up the confusion nicely. One of her triad was not explicitly and only a goddess of battle and death. Another was not the matron of fertility, with the last sister ruling over prophecy. All of her three forms would manifest all of these qualities on some level, along with her association with land and magic in general. She would teach those she chose, and she would test those whom she taught. Christopher Penzak The members of the Trinity vary depending on the source, and the confusion is probably due to conflicting oral traditions that then had to be recorded by Irish monks. The Morrigan is usually said to have included Bive, Maka, Nevin, and occasionally Anu, who might have been the crone aspect of Bive. Confused yet? Some texts even claim that Bive and Maka and Nevin could have been the same entity. So here's a look at their general associations. Bive, spelled B-A-D-B, a war goddess connected to battle, destruction, and death. She appeared over battle as a crow. Some sources say she ran alongside warriors in battle as a gray-red wolf. Bive is commonly linked to rebirth and the cauldron of regeneration in the other world. She was considered a sorceress and prophetess who saw the future. Maka, the sister, is most closely connected with the land and horses. The sacred land and horses representing wealth, power, fertility, and as part of the Trinity, she was the one who was said to rain fire and blood upon her enemies. Nevin, spelled N-E-M-A-I-N, is the aspect associated with the Irish Banshee. Her name means frenzy, fury, and battle panic. Also a deity of battle, death, and destruction, she appeared as a carrion crow. Nevin is connected to prophecy, and her battle cries were an omen of death. On the battlefield, her furious shrieking intimidated, panicked, and confused soldiers. So many myths of the Morrigan we see here, her in an adversarial role in relation to Cúchulainn. I've seen a few retellings that are flavored by the slant that she was in love with the legendary warrior, and because he refused her, she relentlessly sought revenge. I think it's sadly typical to reduce the prophecies and great works of a goddess to a petty response to a romantic issue. Do we really believe that this triformed warrior goddess, who was also romantically linked to the Dagda, would waste her significant time and power on this? It seems more likely that, in her role as a teacher and tutor of warriors, that she's challenging and testing her warriors. In fact, this theme of teaching, testing, and challenging is a common personal experience I've heard recounted by her followers. She incites battles which strengthen the soul, despite the outcome. According to Christopher Penzak, from the perspective of this goddess, dying is not always losing, but returning to her embrace. Elements associated with her are fire and water. Her sacred animals are scavengers, crows, ravens, the wolf, cow, eels, horses. Samhain is a sacred date, as is January 7th, which is considered by some 
to be the Feast of the Morrigan. Her colors are red and black and white, also purple and dark blue, crystals, obsidian, rubies, jet, amethyst, garnet, bloodstone. There are a lot of symbols associated with her, weapons, um, specifically spears, swords, and shields, skulls. There are so many herbs and plants that could be used in connection or as offerings, but a few are belladonna, juniper berries, nightshade, mugwort, yew, blackthorn, the moon phases associated with her, new, the dark moon, and waning. Fords and rivers, bodies of water, are sacred areas to her. I think the second best way that we can begin to know a deity is to research and listen to the personal experiences of those who work with and are devoted to that figure. For example, John Beckett, whose blog Under the Ancient Oaks is published on Pathios Pagan, said the following of a ceremonial encounter with her. She wasn't threatening, but she was very clearly in command. I think she knew the respect we have for her and that she didn't have to convince anybody who she is. She seemed pleased that we were honoring her and attempting to answer her call. She's a complex goddess. She can be blunt, rough, and violent. She is the battle raven and is not to be trifled with. But she has a message I believe is critical for our future as pagans, as humans, and as creatures of the earth. A storm is coming. Gather your tribe. Reclaim your sovereignty. So again, that was John Beckett. The Morrigan is not a goddess to suffer the patriarchy or misogyny. Is one of your great works in this lifetime to overcome the oppression of patriarchal systems? Or are you unable to access your own fierce nature when it's necessary? Personally, one of the things I most appreciate about the Morrigan is that she is an exceptional example of the divine feminine not being soft, not being defined by and almost never related to her reproductive ability, not defined by her ability to be receptive or passive. I find that often in the realm of goddess spirituality, we do backflips trying to glean love, beauty, or other more comfortable qualities and lessons from our goddesses. The Morrigan really forces us to accept the validity of fierce, difficult, and even harsh femininity. Our value, magic, and our power do not lie in our so-called goodness or virtue. Some things to ponder or journal about. What do you need to be strong for? What do you need to stand up for? Where do you need to invoke your sovereignty? Do you truly rule your own life and realm? And if not, what is ruling you? Do you accept the prophecies of others or do you declare your own fate and wade into the battle to make it so? No right or wrong answers for those questions, but they are, I think, powerful to think about. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. There are multiple ways to work with me. Visit my website, blackbirdmagic.com, that's magic with a K, 
I offer multiple group programs for witches and one-on-one -on -one magical mentorship sessions and packages. You can also visit the Witch and Goddess page on Anchor and support the podcast or leave me a voice message. The sources for this episode are Gregory White's Morgan article from Mythopedia, Patty Wigington's piece from Learn Religions, and of course Christopher Penzack's book, The Feast of the Morgan, a grimoire for the Dark Lady of the Emerald Isle. How does she show up for you? How do you experience her? How are you called to her? You can leave voice messages with your experiences of the goddesses I have covered, or general questions and comments about the intersection of goddess work and witchcraft. It's easy to record a voice message for me by going to the Witch and Goddess page on anchor.fm. You'll see a little plus sign icon with the word message. Let me know at the beginning if you'd like me to include the message in an episode. Then just click that baby and talk to me. If you like this show, please subscribe and share this podcast with fellow witches and magical people. You can follow the show at Witch and Goddess Pod at Instagram, and you can find my programs, classes, and groups at blackbirdmagic.com. That's blackbirdmagic, magic with a K, dot com, or email me at witchandgoddesspod at gmail.com.